Section 14 of The Adventures of Gerard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How the Brigadier Rode to Minsk. I would have a stronger wine tonight, my friends, a wine of Burgundy rather than of Bordeaux. It is that my heart, my old soldier heart, is heavy within me. It is a strange thing, this age which creeps upon one. One does not know, one does not understand. The spirit is ever the same, and one does not remember how the poor body crumbles. But there comes a moment when it is brought home, when quick as the sparkle of a whirling sabre it is clear to us, and we see the men we were and the men we are. Yes, yes, it was so to-day, and I would have a wine of Burgundy to-night, white Burgundy, Montrachet. Sir, I am your debtor. It was this morning in the Champ de Mars. Your pardon, friends, while an old man tells his trouble. You saw the review? Was it not splendid? I was in the enclosure for veteran officers who have been decorated. This ribbon on my breast was my passport. The cross itself I keep at home, in a leathern pouch. They did us honour, for we were placed at the saluting point, with the Emperor and the carriages of the court upon our right. It is years since I have been to a review, for I cannot approve of many things which I have seen. I do not approve of the red breeches of the infantry. It was in white breeches that the infantry used to fight. Red is for the cavalry. A little more, and they would ask our busbies and our spurs. Had I been seen at a review, they might well have said that I, Etienne Gerard, had condoned it. So I have stayed at home. But this war of the Crimea is different. The men go to battle. It is not for me to be absent when brave men gather. My faith, they march well, those light infantrymen. They are not large, but they are very solid, and they carry themselves well. I took off my hat to them as they passed. Then there came the guns. They were good guns, well horsed and well manned. I took off my hat to them. Then came the engineers, and to them also I took off my hat. There are no braver men than the engineers. Then came the cavalry, lancers, cuirassiers, chasseurs, and spahis. To all of them in turn I was able to take off my hat, save only to the spahis. The emperor had no spahis, but when all of the others had passed, what think you came at the close? A brigade of hussars, and at the charge. Oh, my friends, the pride and the glory and the beauty, the flash and the sparkle, the roar of the hoofs and the jingle of chains, the tossing manes, the noble heads, the rolling cloud, and the dancing waves of steel. My heart drummed to them as they passed. And last of all was it not my own old regiment. My eyes fell upon the grey and silver dolmens with the leopard-skin shabracks, and at that instant the years fell away from me, and I saw my own beautiful men and horses, even as they had swept behind their young colonel, in the pride of our youth and our strength, just forty years ago. Up flew my cane. Charge! En avant! Vive l'Empereur! It was the past calling to the present. But, oh, what a thin, piping voice! Was this the voice that had once thundered from wing to wing of a strong brigade, and the arm that could scarce wave a cane, 
Were these the muscles of fire and steel which had no match in all Napoleon's mighty host? They smiled at me. They cheered me. The Emperor laughed and bowed. But to me the present was a dim dream, and what was real were my eight hundred dead hussars and the Etienne of long ago. Enough. A brave man can face age and fate as he faced Cossacks and Uhlans, but there are times when Montrachet is better than the wine of Bordeaux. It is to Russia that they go, and so I will tell you a story of Russia. Ah, what an evil dream of the night it seems, blood and ice, ice and blood, fierce faces with snow upon the whiskers, blue hands held out for succour, and across the great white plain the one long black line of moving figures, trudging, trudging, a hundred miles, another hundred, and still always the same white plain. Sometimes there were fir woods to limit it, sometimes it stretched away to the cold blue sky, but the black line stumbled on and on. Those weary, ragged, starving men, the spirit frozen out of them, looked neither to right nor left, but with sunken faces and rounded backs trailed onward and ever onward, making for France as wounded beasts make for their lair. There was no speaking, and you could scarce hear the shuffle of feet in the snow. Only once I heard them laugh. It was outside Vilna, when an aide-de-camp rode up to the head of that dreadful column and asked if that were the Grand Army. All who were within hearing looked round, and when they saw those broken men, those ruined regiments, those fur-capped skeletons who were once the guard, they laughed, and the laugh crackled down the column like a feu de joie. I have heard many a groan and cry and scream in my life, but nothing so terrible as the laugh of the Grand Army. But why was it that these helpless men were not destroyed by the Russians? Why was it that they were not speared by the Cossacks, or herded into droves, and driven as prisoners into the heart of Russia? On every side, as you watched the black snake winding over the snow, you saw also dark moving shadows, which came and went like cloud-drifts on either flank and behind. They were the Cossacks, who hung round us like wolves round the flock. But the reason why they did not ride in upon us was that all the ice of Russia could not cool the hot hearts of some of our soldiers. To the end there were always those who were ready to throw themselves between these savages and their prey. One man above all rose greater as the danger thickened, and won a higher name amid disaster than he had done when he led our van to victory. To him I drink this glass, to Ney, the red-maned lion, glaring back over his shoulder at the enemy who feared to tread too closely on his heels. I can see him now, his broad white face convulsed with fury, his light blue eyes sparkling like flints, his great voice roaring and crashing amid the roll of the musketry. His glazed and featherless cocked hat was the ensign upon which France rallied during those dreadful days. It is well known that neither I nor the regiment of Hussars of Conflans were at Moscow. We were left behind on the lines of communication at Borodino. How the Emperor could have advanced without us is incomprehensible to me, and indeed it was only then that I understood that his judgment was weakening, and that he was no longer the man that he had been. However, a soldier has to obey orders, and so I remained at this village, 
which was poisoned by the bodies of thirty thousand men who had lost their lives in the great battle. I spent the late autumn in getting my horses into condition and reclothing my men, so that when the army fell back on Borodino, my hussars were the best of the cavalry and were placed under Ney in the rearguard. What could he have done without us during those dreadful days? Ah, Gerard, said he one evening, but it is not for me to repeat the words. Suffice it that he spoke what the whole army felt. The rearguard covered the army, and the hussars of Conflans covered the rearguard. There was the whole truth in a sentence. Always the Cossacks were on us, always we held them off. Never a day passed that we had not to wipe our sabres. That was soldiering indeed. But there came a time between Vilna and Smolensk when the situation became impossible. Cossacks and even cold we could fight, but we could not fight hunger as well. Food must be got at all costs. That night Ney sent for me to the wagon in which he slept. His great head was sunk on his hands. Mind and body he was wearied to death. Colonel Gerard, said he, things are going very badly with us. The men are starving. We must have food at all costs. The horses, I suggested. Save your handful of cavalry. There are none left. The band, said I. He laughed, even in his despair. Why the band, he asked. Fighting men are of value. Good, said he. You would play the game down to the last card, and so would I. Good, Gerard, good. He clasped my hand in his. But there is one chance for us yet, Gerard. He unhooked a lantern from the roof of the wagon, and he laid it on a map which was stretched before him. To the south of us, said he, there lies the town of Minsk. I have a word from a Russian deserter that much corn has been stored in the town hall. I wish you to take as many men as you think best, set forth for Minsk, seize the corn, load any carts which you may collect in the town, and bring them to me between here and Smolensk. If you fail, it is but a detachment cut off. If you succeed, it is new life to the army." He had not expressed himself well, for it was evident that if we failed, it was not merely the loss of a detachment. It is quality as well as quantity which counts. And yet how honourable a mission, and how glorious a risk! If mortal man could bring it, then the corn should come from Minsk. I said so, and spoke a few burning words about a brave man's duty, until the marshal was so moved that he rose, and, taking me affectionately by the shoulders, pushed me out of the wagon. It was clear to me that in order to succeed in my enterprise I should take a small force and depend rather upon surprise than upon numbers. A large body could not conceal itself, would have great difficulty in getting food, and would cause all the Russians around us to concentrate for its certain destruction. On the other hand, if a small body of cavalry could get past the Cossacks unseen, it was probable that they would find no troops to oppose them, for we knew that the main Russian army was several days' march behind us. This corn was meant, no doubt, for their consumption. A squadron of hussars and thirty Polish lancers were all whom I chose for the venture. That very night we rode out of the camp and struck south in the direction of Minsk. Fortunately there was but a half-moon, and we were able to pass without being attacked by the enemy. Twice we saw great fires burning amid the snow, 
and around them a thick bristle of long poles. These were the lances of Cossacks, which they had stood upright while they slept. It would have been a great joy to us to have charged in amongst them, for we had much to revenge, and the eyes of my comrades looked longingly from me to those red flickering patches in the darkness. My faith, I was sorely tempted to do it, for it would have been a good lesson to teach them that they must keep a few miles between themselves and a French army. It is the essence of good generalship, however, to keep one thing before one at a time, and so we rode silently on through the snow, leaving these Cossack bivouacs to right and left. Behind us the black sky was all mottled with a line of flame which showed where our own poor wretches were trying to keep themselves alive for another day of misery and starvation. All night we rode slowly onward, keeping our horses' tails to the pole star. There were many tracks in the snow, and we kept to the line of these, that no one might remark that a body of cavalry had passed that way. These are the little precautions which mark the experienced officer. Besides, by keeping to the tracks we were most likely to find the villages, and only in the villages could we hope to get food. The dawn of day found us in a thick fir-wood, the trees so loaded with snow that the light could hardly reach us. When we had found our way out of it, it was full daylight, the rim of the rising sun peeping over the edge of the great snow-plain, and turning it crimson from end to end. I halted my hussars and lancers under the shadow of the wood, and I studied the country. Close to us there was a small farmhouse. Beyond, at the distance of several miles, was a village. Far away on the skyline rose a considerable town, all bristling with church towers. This must be Minsk. In no direction could I see any sign of troops. It was evident that we had passed through the Cossacks, and that there was nothing between us and our goal. A joyous shout burst from my men when I told them our position, and we advanced rapidly toward the village. I have said, however, that there was a small farmhouse immediately in front of us. As we rode up to it I observed that a fine grey horse with a military saddle was tethered by the door. Instantly I galloped forward, but before I could reach it a man dashed out of the door, flung himself onto the horse, and rode furiously away the crisp dry snow flying up in a cloud behind him. The sunlight gleamed upon his gold epaulets, and I knew that he was a Russian officer. He would raise the whole countryside if we did not catch him. I put spurs to Violette and flew after him. My troopers followed, but there was no horse among them to compare with Violette, and I knew well that if I could not catch the Russian I need expect no help from them. But it is a swift horse indeed and a skilful rider who can hope to escape from Violette with Etienne Gerard in the saddle. He rode well, this young Russian, and his mount was a good one, but gradually we wore him down. His face glanced continually over his shoulder, dark, handsome face, with eyes like an eagle, and I saw as I closed with him that he was measuring the distance between us. Suddenly he half turned. There was a flash and a crack as his pistol-bullet hummed past my ear. Before he could draw his sword I was upon him, but he still spurred his horse, and the two galloped together over the plain, I with my leg against the Russians and my left hand upon his right shoulder. I saw his hand fly up to his mouth. Instantly I dragged him across my pommel and seized him by the throat so that he could not swallow. His horse shot from under him, 
but I held him fast, and Violette came to a stand. Sergeant Houdin of the Hussars was the first to join us. He was an old soldier, and he saw at a glance what I was after. "'Hold tight, Colonel,' said he. "'I'll do the rest.' End of section 14